We are joined now by Michael Smith, jazz analyst for AT&T Sportsnet, former Clipper broadcaster. Michael joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Lease any handset and get an iPad for $99.99. Visit the local Sprint store near you. Michael, good morning. How are you guys? Long time no talk. Yes, uh, we are good. It has been a long time since we had you on. But, Michael, you worked for the Clippers in the bad old days. When they had arguably (laughs) not just the worst owner in the league, arguably the worst owner in any league. And now they have the kind of competence that pulls off a trade that was literally linked to nobody. And at midnight on a Friday night, they're landing Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. How blown away were you when you got the news? Well, I had mixed emotions, as you might imagine. Uh, I worked for that franchise for 20 years. I played for that franchise. Uh, for the majority of those 20 years, it was under one ownership. And although, you know, what you say may be true about the previous ownership, he was a very loyal guy, even though he had his ideas about how to run a franchise. And through those really barren years in the cupboards, uh, his idea was kind of to treat it like uh, really a real estate apartment building. You know, he filled it with with hope and new tenants every year and sold everybody on the draft. And, you know, it was Elton Brand to Lamar Odom to Darius Miles to Quentin Richardson to Michael Oliver Candy. It was every year there was a new draft pick that was going to save the franchise. But in reality, he just treated it like kind of an asset that he knew if he held on to long enough, it would grow. And certainly it did. But they never were able to win. It it was a bottom-of-the-barrel type team. It was uh, run that way. You know, they didn't pay their executives. They didn't pay their coaches. And I mean, I mean, he 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 bought that team for what eleven million dollars in nineteen eighty-four, I guess. No, nineteen seventy-nine, and then moved them to L.A. in eighty-four, and ended up selling it for two billion. So who could tell him that he did things wrong? Uh, at least business-wise. And then, of course, new ownership. And like I said, my my feelings are mixed. I I live here in Southern California, so there's an excitement that's now brewing for basketball again in L.A. That part is fantastic. I think the league in a whole is better if the Lakers, the Bulls, and the Knicks are great. So at least for right now, you got the Lakers in the city of L.A. who might be considered great and a couple of contending teams. But, you know, this new ownership that's brought about these changes, that's all great. But they're, they're also the same ownership who didn't hire me back two years ago. So there, therein lies my mixed emotions. Like, really? I won Emmys in Los Angeles, and you're just going to get rid of everybody? And so I, I, I'm torn. I'm happy for them. I'm happy for the fans uh, with whom I had a relationship for 20 years. Uh, at the same time, I'm kind of like shocked out of my mind that Kawhi made that decision. But Maybe we underestimate the power of one Jerry West, who's arguably the greatest of all time. So then you've got the Lakers and the Clippers with some huge acquisitions, big names, and it seems like you know it's just great offseason off for these guys. And the Jazz are right there, too. They've made a bunch of acquisitions with a couple of starters, potentially, and then some bench guys that have some uh, renown in this league. So my question right. there for you is how do the Jazz compare to the two L.A. teams? Gosh, I would think I would think the Jazz are a top four team in the West. 
I think they've bettered themselves. Uh, I think the Mike Conley acquisition was brilliant, regardless of the cost. He, he's the perfect complement to the way the Jazz like to play basketball. He can defend. He's terrific at the pick and roll. Uh, the beauty of him in terms of a Ricky Rubio comparison, and nothing against Ricky because I love him to death, is that Conley can go either way. He's just as good on a right-hand floater if he goes right off a Gobert center pick and roll and shoots a right-hand floater or a left. He can shoot. He can defend. He's an upgrade in so many ways. But maybe in the two most important ways, forget about how he plays, uh, his character is equal to a Rubio. He's that kind of a guy. The, the community will love him. He's just an upstanding. He's one of the greatest guys I've met in the league. I have a wonderful relationship with him. I couldn't have been more thrilled when he came. And secondly, the Jazz don't have to change their offense around a star player. And I call him a star player, guys, because the guy, even though he's you know over 10 years in the league now and never an all-star, you might think, oh, he's underachieved. Not the case at all. This guy is every bit an all-star player. We should view him that way. His you know nemesis has been the Western Conference. So, you know, with Kobe, Curry, Clay, Westbrook, Lillard, you know, Harden, Chris Paul, when was he ever going to make an all-star team, right? There's only so many guards that can make it in the West during his 10-year run. But I viewed him that way and had a up-close and personal view of him with three playoff series against the Clippers where he was dynamic and very difficult to stop. So those are my thoughts on him. And if that were the alone pickup, you'd be like, okay, they got one of the top two or three backcourts in the entire league with Conley and Donovan Mitchell. Only rivaled this next year maybe by Portland. And, gosh, I dare you to find another backcourt, maybe Paul and Harden, depending on what's going on there tension-wise, that's better. With Clay Thompson out, the Jazz now have stepped up into the top three backcourts in the league with the best defensive player in the league. And here's the part I'm excited about. Guys, last year Joe Ingles was your second or maybe third best player on a given night. But most nights, you're second best player. And the stats don't say that. But to me, that was the eye test. You needed Joe Ingles to make plays, to make shots. You know, Gobert is reliable on one end, but not so much on the other. But much improved in getting better. And everybody had a certain, you know, strength, but a flaw. But now, with the addition of Connolly, the emergence of Donovan... The, another honor for Gobert will only fuel his confidence and his ability to work. Now you add Bogdanovich, and I'm not even counting Jeff Green, but Joe Ingles is now your fifth best player. If Joe Ingles is your second or third best player, you can't win a championship. But if he's your fifth best player, you got a chance to beat anybody in any series. Michael Smith joining us here, jazz analyst for AT&T Sportsnet, used to work for the Clippers. How many teams in the NBA this year have a legitimate chance to win the title? Because I think the number is normally two or three at this point. Yeah. What's the number now? Uh, in the East, I guess you got three, right? Oh. Oh. Uh, let's call it Boston, Philly, Milwaukee. Those are my thoughts in the East. In the West, I'd say six. You know, that's excluding Golden State. Uh, that's excluding Sacramento, who's much improved. 
it almost looks like your Sacramento, your Golden State, your New Orleans, they'll all be battling for a final playoff spot or a 7-8 run, but there's probably six in the West. Lakers, Clippers, Jazz, Blazers, Denver, Houston. Because I don't think Houston got worse roster-wise. There's just all this talk about the tension. Portland feels like they'll be every bit as good. Denver, to me, looks like they'll be every bit as good or better with another year under their belt. And you don't win on your first run to the playoffs with a good team, a good young team. It takes a couple of tries. And then, of course, the Jazz, Lakers, and Clippers. There's six in the West and three in the East, so I'd say nine. Evaluate the Jazz bench. Well, go through it with me. Axum. You got to tell me who. Tell me who's Axum. starting first. Okay, well, yeah. The starters Axum. would be the two new guys: Bogdanovich, Conley, Ingles, uh, Gobert, and who else am I leaving out? Donovan. Donovan. Yeah, forgot about that guy. I thought that was a given, <laughs> so, so I didn't think you were leaving anybody so out. I just assumed that so was. So your bench is Exum. Uh, Jeff Green, Ed Davis. Royce O'Neal, Niang. Royce O'Neal, and who else? Niang. Oh, yeah, George Niang. You know, I, I, I almost feel like you could go small, and I almost feel like you could put Joe Ingles in that second group. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pretending to tell Quinn what to do. But... Okay, you I now have enough shoot. You now have enough shooting and scoring that maybe you don't need Joe in the first unit. But the way Quinn substitutes, it's beautiful. Like he he brings them in one at a time as opposed to platooning five for five. So and maybe that was out of necessity last year. We always had to have either Donovan, Ricky, or Joe, or a combination of two of the three on the floor, so you had two playmakers. But maybe with Mike Connolly, Donovan, you know Bogdanovich at the three. Ed Davis four and Gobert five, maybe you have enough shooting and scoring uh, that you could bring Ingles off the bench. So now you Exum, who's not a natural point guard to me, but he's an athlete. And if he recovers, he was on the verge of some really great games before he got hurt. Now you can put Ingles with that group because Royce is not a natural scorer. I don't know. I, 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 just, don't, I just don't foresee them. Certainly not down the stretch runner in the playoffs, platooning five in and five out. He, he's always going to combine guys. And that's the beauty of the Jazz team. Defensively, they're, they're, they can play that way, almost positionless. And offensively, they can play that way. Mitchell can handle the point. You could, you could have a lineup where Mitchell, Mitchell's a one, Ingles is a two, and Bogdanovich a three. Now you've got three shooters while you rest Connolly. I really like what they have. And... And more than anything, it's that cohesion, that's that chemistry, that defensive mindset. They're going to beat a lot of teams uh, during the regular season because the Jazz bring it on the defensive end every night. And so that's the thing you can never prepare for, right? Every night, boom, you got the next team. And you're like, crap, we just played this team. Uh-oh, we got Utah. you got one day to prepare for them. And then you, you really can't prepare mentally for what they'll face with Gobert and their defensive mindset. Now they got a point guard who can get after you. It's it's going to be fun to watch. I'm I'm super excited. I mean, uh, hats off to Dennis Lindsley and what he's done. That's you. You guys and I talked at the end of the season. What are they going to do? And we were like, God, oh, they got to add more shooting. They got to add a little more defense and scoring. And it's not easy to do. Yet they did it. 
in the midst of like Kawhi Leonard holding the whole league hostage, you know how that's a whole domino trigger thing. When one chip falls, then they start to go. I really thought Tobias Harris would go somewhere else, but when Jimmy Butler goes to Miami, Philly keeps him. It's just, it's such a crazy thing. The, the NBA really has it made, guys. They, they market it so well, but the timing of all these events from the playoffs beginning to the lottery to the finals to the draft to free agency to summer league, and then there's a month, and then we start. It's an amazing marketing strategy. They, they keep their fans on the hook during the four months of the offseason, and, and, you know, you get to October, and, like, can't wait to see how it all plays out. Yeah, I don't want you to tell Quinn what to do because, you know, you can't tell Quinn what to do. Quinn's going to do whatever he wants. He's not going to worry about what you and I say. <laughs> That's true. So it's better just to predict what Quinn's going to do. And off watching the way he's subbed in the past, I assume, you know, not worrying about who the starters are because, you know, that after five minutes you can make a sub anyway. And the first five minutes don't usually determine an NBA game, almost never. But isn't true. he always going to keep Ingles, Mitchell, Conley, two of those three on the court together unless – Bogdanovich emerges, and I'd have to see him more than I've seen him in the East, emerges as a guy who really can initiate pick and rolls and make people pay, um, in which case then you got four guys, so now you really got options. But right now I'm assuming two of those three guys are always going to be on the floor. So well, I think that's the mindset. I think that that's the way they play. That's what Quinn wants. He wants the floor spread. He wants shooters wide. He wants primarily a, a large dose of center pick and roll. Uh, I know I hear Bowler call it the blender, and that may be you know what Quinn calls it, just to kind of mix things up and get it moving right to left and swirling around. I get the analogy, and that's kind of the idea. I, I don't foresee Bogdanovich being a, a a great playmaker, certainly not passing on the fly, but just a simple you know pick and roll play he could make. But I don't foresee him being a primary ball handler. He can put it on the floor, surprisingly, and he can uh, catch and shoot. So that part is great. And what I like about Bogdanovich is he's a little bit older, and he's been in some battles. You know, those Indiana teams, Cleveland had to go through them a couple of times, and, and he had the unenviable task to guard like LeBron James. And I watched him. He never, he never backed down from those. Nobody can guard him. But, I mean, he wasn't afraid. That, that kind of playoff experience and – and uh, toughness, you know, fits, fits the Jazz mentality that will help him in, in some tough Western Conference battles and come playoff time. But, but I'm excited. Uh, you know, you, you kind of feel like the Jazz sometimes have a ceiling. They, they have to draft well and they have to develop well. And you've heard me talk about this before, guys, but they've done a marvelous job through their history of drafting well. You know, Stockton at 16 and Malone at 13 and Kirilenko late in the first round and a Brian Russell and an Ostertag. And, I mean, you can just go through it. An Eaton in the fourth round and, you know, Thurl was a high pick, I think seven or eight, probably a no-brainer. Same with a Daryl Griffith through the years. But, you know, they just, they're really good at what they do. They, they know the pressure's on. We got to draft well, but to, to pluck a Gobert at 27 and, and get a Mitchell at 13 and have those two be your foundational pieces, that's marvelous. It doesn't happen. I mean, it happens once in a while, but it doesn't happen year after year after year. The Spurs are great at it. And, of course, Dennis comes from that mindset. Uh, and, and all the more pressure in a small market to be able to, 
to have to be able to do it, not to just like once in a while score on a late pick. They do it all the time, and it's great. And it's a credit to them and their, their scouting system and their decision-making. Uh, I'm, I could not be more thrilled for what the next season holds and to be a part of things and calling the games with Bowler and Alema. I'm, I'm thrilled out of my mind. So. Well, we appreciate a few minutes, Michael. Thanks for joining us, and we will uh, talk to you again. And by the way, guys, I just spent eight days up there. Uh, it's got to be the most underrated state in the, in the union. It's awesome. We had a wonderful week spending 4th of July. Your Utah golf courses are amazing. <laughs> and it was, it was wonderful. So enjoy the summer. You guys do a great job. Congrats on a 10-year run that's unparalleled.